I remember when I was younger, people would always look at my dad and say, man, your, your son looks a lot like you. He's, he's a little mini Bill. Or they look at my mom, and I didn't really understand this, be like, he looks a lot like you. I was like, wait, hold on. I look like him, I look like her. How does that work? Uh, we had kids. Uh, our first son comes out, and he has red hair. Uh, Valerie and I, neither one of us have red hair. It was very confusing for a little while. And so people would always say, where did the red hair come from? And my, my first reaction uh, years ago was, I got no clue. I got no clue. This is not like bottle, you know, brown or whatever. And so I got no clue. And so I, I tell people that my mom, uh, one day she said, what do you mean you got no clue where the red hair came from? I said, like, I thought that was an easy statement. I got, I got no clue where the red hair came from. She said, well, your grandmother had red hair. I said, well, it was always white in my life. I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> and so, but, but children tend to look like their parents. Children tend to look like their parents. And so for some of your kids, that's bad news. But for others of you, man, they hit, they hit the jackpot. And so, uh, but kids tend to grow up and they tend to look like their parents. And the same is true spiritually. The way we read scripture, there is an imprint, there's a picture of what our heavenly father looks like. And there is this call to emulate, to resemble, and to look like him. And that's what we see in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3 and verse 3. There is a call for us to resemble our heavenly father and that in purity and righteousness. And what John gives us in this is how then we may be righteous and how then we may be pure. Let me read uh, 228 through 33 for us as we study God's word. John writes and says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, know, but we will know it when he appears that we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There are really only two commands given in 228 through 33. The first one of these happens in verse 28, and it is the command to abide. And the second one of these happens in verse 1 of chapter 3, and it is the command to see. Let's talk about what it means to abide. Verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him. Now, this sounds to us like work, right? And it sounds to us like we need to be kind of investing ourselves and making sure that we're not being severed, separated from God. This, this is daunting, if this is how we take this. But what we recognize is that immediately prior to verse 28 and verse 27, look what he says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. In verse 27 of chapter 2, we're given this assurance of salvation of sorts. And the assurance is when you came to know Jesus, when you recognized that Jesus was sin of God, that he came, lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died for your sins, that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, that he entered into the grave, that three days later he rose again, and that on the basis of this and your faith in him, that you're able to be forgiven your sins. That when this is the confession of your heart, that this is the trajectory of your life, you were saved, you received a seal, an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And what John writes to them, and he says, this is good. 
this abides, this remains. And we recognize that that work is not of our doing, right? You are saved by God. Amen? You are saved by God. His anointing rests on you. It abides in you. This is great news for us. And so the dictum of if saved, always saved is true for us. If we are truly saved, then we will remain truly saved over the course of our lives. So what is John on about when he comes into this? And effectively, he tells us, you are abiding. It abides in you. And he turns to verse 28, and he says, and now, little children, abide in him. It's amazing. John calls us to live out the reality of our relationship with Jesus. John calls us to rest in the reality of our relationship with Jesus. It would be like if my dad were to call me and he'd say, he'd say, son, you're still my son. I'd say, look, I know this. I know this is true. He said, well, then continue to live as my son. Man, there's so many of us that, that we feel like our relationship with God is this thing hanging by this real tenuous thread. And that our good or bad behavior is putting a strain on this thread to the point where God is just ready to snip it and just let us fall away. But the picture we get in scripture is one that that his anointing, his salvation is resting in us or on us and we are called to dwell in the reality of that fact. This is what he's calling us to. Recognize who you are in Christ. And does the recognition of who you are in Christ have incredibly profound impact on how you live? Or is it just this thing you kind of file away? Is it just this thing you kind of file away, like some skill you acquired? You're like, oh yeah, I can shoot a bow with my left hand and my right hand. Or is it something that profoundly alters who you are? Because the picture that John gives us here is abiding in him, trusting in him, fundamentally alters who we are. Look what he says. Abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. We recognize as those who believe in Jesus Christ, who are united together with him through faith, that Jesus is coming again, right? And so he is coming back just as he came uh, earlier and he serves as a substitute for us. He serves as a sacrifice for us. He is also coming back. And the ability that we have to stand before him, not as one ashamed who looks at his life and says, oh man, I was going to get around to that. I was going to get around to righteous living. I was going to get around to this. He says, don't be that person. But instead, in as much as you are abiding in him, allow that to foster in you confidence. Allow that to foster in you confidence. This is why the author of Hebrews over and again says we have this confidence to draw near. What is our confidence found in? It's not some oral articulation of the gospel. It's not submitting ourselves to some type of rigorous testing where I give you a 1,001 questions and you're you're just going through and you're like, oh, the hypostatic union, I got that. Oh, this, I got that. The Trinity, ooh, skip that, come back to it. Oh, I got this, I got that. This is not what makes us have the ability to abide. It is God's work in us. This is not what makes us, what creates in us a confidence whereby we grow in our theological understanding and knowledge. All of a sudden we reach this place where we're like, now I'm confident. Can I tell you, there are any number of things in life that I have zero confidence in. I started building a shed with my dad a couple of weeks ago, and I had a friend come over uh, Friday, and we're working on the roof. And when I reached that point, 
My confidence dropped to an all-time low once we begin to cut things and recognize they're not fitting this way. How important is that, right? It's important enough that you wouldn't want to walk in the building, right? And so our confidence isn't ultimately tied to our ability. It's tied to our resting in him. The degree to which you rest in God's abiding, the degree, the degree to which you rest and trust in the sufficiency of, he, sufficiency of his salvation for you and in you, has direct tie to your confidence. Listen to this. If you constantly feel like salvation is this work you're doing, if you constantly feel like you're repairing and keeping and working to, to re-engage and foster your relationship with God, it's not going to create confidence in you. It's going to create incredible insecurity in you. Imagine if you're in a marriage where unless you did 50 things each day, your spouse just, you knew that he or she would leave. Or you're in a work relationship and you knew if you didn't do these 50 things every day, you're going to lose that job. That creates incredible insecurity in you. And it creates this list of things where you're like, I, I, I just, I have to work this list. I have to do these things. Christianity for many of us becomes this list. It becomes this list of things where we have to do or we are afraid that our relationship will be fractured. We have no evidence in Scripture that that's how God relates to us. And that's why he calls us in the midst of this to abide, to dwell, to rest. Look at the ease he gives us there. We're resting in the finished final work of Jesus on our behalf. Not how good, great, and wonderful we are, not how sinless we are. But even in the midst of this, look at what he's calling us to. We don't abide so that when he shows up, we can have confidence and not shame. And look what he says here, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, in essence, John is calling us to say, do you know God is righteous? And we would say, amen. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is what God says of you. What God says of you is if you are a person who has surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that he has declared, he has made you righteous, okay? Righteousness is a seal upon your heart. He has enabled you to dwell righteously. And so when we find that we are not engaged in living righteously before God, we are working against the character, character traits of our family. This thing that God has handed down to you, in one five we read, that God is righteous, and so what he's telling us in this, if you are a child of God, you will live righteously. But the degree to which you live righteously isn't making you more saved. Do you see how that works? But instead, the more we abide in him, the more we trust in him, the more we rest in him. One, he's giving you a craving, a longing, for righteousness. And two, he is making you righteous by virtue of the fact you're spending more time resting in him instead of toiling on your own. And so the character traits we get in the first one is that we will be righteous. The second one gets in that we will be pure. Look at 3.1. The second command is see what kind of love the Father has given us. See what kind of love the Father has given us. I took a lot of road trips as a kid. Uh, we lived uh, in a place where there were many things very beautiful, very close to where we lived. And so we get in the car, and a lot of these road trips, 
would be cruising down the road, and my dad would be like, see, look, a waterfall. See, look, a lake. See, look, a bird. And so we're seeing these amazingly beautiful things at like 100 miles an hour. So we're doing this number. And so it's kind of this passing beauty. There was no appreciation of it, right? So you're like, waterfall, bird, lake. Got it. Sure, they were very beautiful, but like, isn't quite how to take these things in. Many of us go through our Christian lives, and this is kind of how we observe God's love. We pass by God's love in the midst of work, in the midst of family, in the midst of vacation, in the midst of everything else we do. We never take time to stop and focus on his love. 3-1 here, this is, the, this is the command. See his love. We're so busy. We're so busy doing things and going places that we ca- hope to catch God's love in kind of the peripheral of where we go. But what he calls us to here in 3-1 is to make this the sole focus of what we see. It occupies the entire uh, field of vision for us. Other, others of us end up on the opposite end of the spectrum. Say for, say, for instance, if I were to go to the Grand Canyon, and I step kind of at the edge of it, and I look out, and I see this expanse, and I just think, man, this thing is beautiful. I see God's hand in this. It is amazing. Man, I can't wait to get home and, and, and test this air sample I've got. I'm going to get some dirt. I'm going to go analyze that. I can't wait to capture a little bunny and take it home and, and, and test it. And I can't wait to dig up some plants and test that and gather some rocks and test that and get down to the water, get me a little vial and go home. I cannot wait to get back to my lab to run tests on all these things so I can better understand it. So you get back from your trip to the Grand Canyon. People say, how was the trip? You're like, man, I've done some amazing study from this. They're like, well, what was it like to stand at the Grand Canyon? You're like, I don't really remember that, but let me tell you what I found about these rocks. Let me tell you what I found about this rabbit. Let me tell you what I found about this air and about this water. Some of us, we miss marveling at God's love. And what we've substituted it for is deep study of his word. This sounds strange. Instead of loving God, Instead of being wowed on and amazed by who he is, we substitute this position of marvel and awe for a systemized approach to understanding. It's not what he calls us to. This is what God calls us to, and this is odd for a Western mind. What he calls us to is to look at his love and to be blown away. Look at his love and be blown away. Stop. Stop. It's not through careful study. There's not some rigorous discipline that you can have. What he calls you to is to direct the very posture of your life to focusing on his love for you. It's transformative. difficult even this week i can tell you when i first started looking at this my initial instinct my initial reaction was say okay well what's the tense how's this breaking out let me begin to look deeper and deeper and deeper let me begin to pour over this deeper and deeper and deeper and so i'm moving further and further away from what the command is but in in, in my mind that's okay because i'm gaining more and more and more knowledge of how to do this it's really simple you don't need to go to school to figure this out you don't need somebody to else to tell you marvel be amazed stare at his love be preoccupied with it 
put yourself in a place and in a posture where all you see is his love for you. I can tell you this is one of the things that we do. One of the things we do is this, this understanding of God's love for the person beside me or God's love for just kind of gracious extension to everyone. And so we say, man, I, I memorized John three sixteen in the King James and in the New King James and in the NIV. I've been memorizing them all. In fact, I've even got this new translation I'm working on. And so we understand that, that his love is met out on all humanity that receives Jesus, right? It's not what he called you to. It's not this kind of blanket application to anybody and everybody for all times and all people. What he calls you to is this incredibly personalized kind of love in this place. See what kind of love, how great, how amazing, how marvelous this love the Father has poured out on you. Look how he describes it. That we should be called the children of God. That we should be called the children of God. And John gets in there and he's describing it in this way. And he says, see, this is an amazing type of love that we should be called the children of God. And everybody says, okay, we understand this should be, our, this should be what we go by. This should be our call sign. We should be those who are called the children of God. But they don't really believe it. They don't really believe that this is an adequate descriptor for who they are. So John comes right back at them and he says, and so we are. If you are here today a believer a follower of Jesus Christ. You have surrendered your life to him. You have believed on him for salvation. You have confessed your sins. You have turned your life and you are following him. Today, you are a child of God. John writing in his gospel in verses 12 and 13, in chapter one said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God's hand was intimately involved in you coming to know him. He has made you alive and alive to him. So we get into the middle of this. Recognize that that our family trait in following God stems from the fact that he has made us his own. And his love rests upon us even in the midst of our waywardness. You know, some of us look at this and we say, yeah, but, but, but I feel like nobody around me understands. Nobody around me is able to get it when I try and articulate it to them. So John comes at us with this next verse. He says, the reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Jesus' words to us are, in some sense, confirming, but not all that comforting. In John 15, starting in verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It is not an easy thing to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus has nothing to do with life enhancement. It's got nothing to do with making your life better, helping you to, to love your wife better, helping her to nag on you less, making your bank account just flush with money, making your car nicer, making your dog not bark, or making it pick up its own poop. It doesn't do any of those things, right? That's God echoing an amen. <laughs> Salvation and faith in Jesus Christ is about life saving. 
And one of the things we read in the scriptures is so difficult for us to receive is that increasingly, as you become more and more identified with Jesus, there are people, some of you, it is your husband, some of you, it is your wife, some of you, it is your child, your parents. They won't understand you. And what Jesus tells the disciples by extension, what he tells us in the midst of this is, I have taken you out of the world. You are not of the world. And so what we recognize to a certain degree that what we're having to do to be engaging for those who are still in the world is to exegete, to study the culture and to speak to them in ways that they do understand. But it is not our ability to understand the culture, to speak to them that ultimately brings them into salvation. What brings any one of us into salvation is the gracious intervention of God on our behalf. As Paul writes, he takes dead things and makes them alive, according to Ephesians 2. He takes dead things and he makes them alive. Now look at verse 2. There are those of us who are firmly convinced that it's some future version of ourselves that God loves. There's some future version of ourselves that is pleasing to him. So John comes at them once more and he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. This version of you, this version of you, this, this person in process, this this kind of flawed individual, this person who always leaves the toilet seat up, whose wife always sits on it, right? This version of you, this liar, this prideful person, this adulterer at heart, this wayward person, this apathetic person, this person who, who you come to church once every six weeks and only so people will recognize you. And you purposely sit in different spots so that you can say, oh no, man, I just move around a lot. You must not be seeing me, but I've been there. It's very clever. That's also a lot of work to remember where you sat six weeks ago. I can't remember what I wore last week. You are his child now. You are his child now. His love rests upon you. He is working to redeem you. He is working to call you out of your waywardness. He is working to call you out of your apathy. But you are his child now. And there's such good news. He goes on and says, And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When Jesus comes back, he will make us pure. He will make us holy. When we see him, it says, Because we shall see him as he is Theologians describe it as this beatific vision. When we see Jesus, we are instantly transformed. But in the midst of it, we're people in process. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. You are his child now. Not this, this, this stumbling that we do. The striving and, and the difficulty, we end up in this ditch, we get out of this ditch, and we go to this ditch over here. And we have an 18-month-old child at home. He is just now learning to walk. So sometimes he gets up and he's, he's toddling along. We're like, yes, you're nailing it so good. And then, bam, he goes down, seemingly for the count, but he pops right back up again. I mean, if I fall like that, I'm just staying down. I'm crying. But he's so short, it's not a big deal. Now, when he goes down, if his mother and I were to run over to him and be like, look, you are an abject failure. We are so incredibly disappointed in you. And perhaps you should just crawl. This is really kind of disappointing. 
like you drooled, you vomited, your diaper needs to be changed. Maybe you should just crawl. Maybe you should just give up on this walking thing. That would be ridiculous. We wouldn't have very many friends that would want to come to our houses if we talked to our kids that way, right? Man, did you hear the way they talked to him? Yikes. But we do that to ourselves. We do that to ourselves. We do that to the people around us. We see them struggling with sin. They're addicted to pornography. Addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, addicted to self, addicted to goodness, addicted to the perception that everybody sees of them. We give them one chance, we give them two chances, but we're so incredibly done with them. What we are has not yet appeared. We are people in process. You are his child now. Not some future version of yourself. And in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your flaws, in the midst of your weakness and your sin, what he calls you back to is verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us. And as we gaze at his love, as we are marveled, as we marvel at his love, look what happens in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In the midst of gazing at God's love, being on our knees, on our back, on our faces before this holy God, and admiring and being completely enveloped by his love, in the midst of these things, he is purifying you. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We recognize, according to Matthew, that God is pure, and he calls us to perfection. But we don't get this by keeping some list of things of, oh, that doesn't measure up to purity. Oh, that doesn't measure up to this. That doesn't measure up to that. How we achieve purity, how we purify ourselves is marveling at God's love, humbly submitting our hearts to him and him transforming who we are. We are receiving his grace. Children resemble their parents. We resemble God by becoming righteous and by being pure. And we accomplish this by resting in the provision of what he's given us and by marveling at his love. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the provisions that we have in your son. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. God, that you call us to things that are somewhat difficult for us to do because it's us trusting and resting in you. You call us to abide and you call us to marvel at your love. God, would you give us the strength to cease striving? Would you give us the strength to allow you to work in our hearts? Would you guide us in our confession and guide us in our repentance? Father, in these next moments, as we have opportunity corporately to respond to you, I pray that you be working each and every heart, calling us to certain areas where we might submit ourselves to you, calling us to those things that we need to, to give up, and showing us a glimpse of your love for us and helping us to be enamored by it. 
And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. They have not come to know you. They have not been saved. God, that you'd be working in their hearts, that you would give them such an overwhelming picture of your love that you would be calling them to abide in you instead of abiding in themselves. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.